A sheriff's deputy in Loudoun County, Virginia, named Clark Jackson, was out on patrol in Harper's Ferry National Historic Park when he stopped to turn around in a parking lot. That's when he saw a trunk, just sitting there, near an access point to the Appalachian Trail. He got out for a closer look and saw that the black footlocker had been sealed up with tape. So he ripped off the tape, opened the top, and saw a duffel bag inside. He opened the bag, and inside that, he found a human hand. He called for backup, and when investigators came to the scene, they saw, curled up inside the trunk, the body of an elderly man. The man was naked from the waist down, wearing just a pajama top. His head had been covered with a pillowcase. According to Carlton Smith's book, In the Arms of Evil, the way that the body had been stuffed in there and the strained expression on the victim's face reminded some of the officers who worked on the case of a jack-in-the-box. Over time, the mystery man's case would be nicknamed the -the jack-in-the-box case, and the hunt to find the killer would lead investigators to a beautiful but broken, cold-hearted con woman who seduced her victims, bled them dry, and eventually went in for the kill. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Red Collar. Police in Loudoun County, Virginia, were trying to identify the dead man they had found curled up in a trunk. But it proved to be a challenge. They sent fingerprints off to the FBI criminal database, but got no matches. The victim measured just over 5 feet 6 inches and weighed just 111 pounds. They were able to figure out that he had been severely malnourished. Someone had slowly starved him and drugged him over a period of weeks, maybe months. According to the Washington Post, the victim also had blunt force injury on the back of his head, which had occurred before his death, and toxic levels of Benadryl, an over-the-counter sedative, in his liver. The autopsy showed that the victim had died of cervical compression, basically strangulation. Even though investigators did not find rope marks on his neck, they did find other cuts and bruises there, and also bruising in the back of his throat, that indicated to them that he could have been choked by his killer. Investigators did get a pretty accurate time of death. They were able to figure out that the victim had been dead for about two days and had been dumped at the site where he was found on the evening of May 13th. This had been a slow, agonizing death, and police had a theory that the victim's medicine was most likely administered by someone he trusted. They thought that could have been a nurse, a caregiver, or maybe a family member who wanted him dead. Maybe the killer wanted to kill the victim to get his money, or take his social security benefits. Or maybe the strain of caring for him had just been too much and they snapped. But until they identified the victim, they had no way of finding the killer. They canvassed local nursing homes to see if anyone recognized him, but got no hits. At this point, police were starting to believe that the killer had purposely taken the victim from the area where he was killed to help misdirect the investigation. On that note, They wondered why, if the killer had thought ahead enough to move the body, why had they left it out in the open like that? Why hadn't they tipped it over into the Potomac River, where it would likely have disappeared for months or even years? Some people in law enforcement theorized that the killer may have had compassion and wanted the victim to be found. 
Others were more cynical. They pointed out that there was a dumpster nearby and said the killer probably just thought the trunk would have been picked up with the rest of the trash. Detectives kept looking for clues to the victim's identity. He had a 10-inch scar on his chest. They found out that he'd had a heart surgery years earlier and had a Dacron ring in one of his heart valves. Detectives got a court order from the ring's manufacturer to force the company to release the names of their patients. But there were thousands, so this was just another dead end. But the detectives didn't give up. They used a computer program to reconstruct the man's face and sent that mailing to heart surgeons all over the country in the hopes that someone would recognize him. Many surgeons replied, but none recognized the potential patient, according to the book In the Arms of Evil. Detectives also found drops of nail polish on top of the trunk and dog's hairs inside it, but nothing that they could really use to narrow down the search. After trying everything that they could think of, they filed the evidence away. And even though police never gave up and kept on working on IDing the victim, for the next several years, the case went cold. Finally, in 2003, they got a break after a new policewoman started working on the case. She called America's Most Wanted and ran the fingerprints again, again with no luck. But eventually, she was able to access the FBI's military records. This time, they got a hit. The victim was Jasper Jack Frederick Watkins. Jack was born in 1920, and he was a World War II veteran. They found a paper trail leading back to him, including multiple credit card applications in his name. And they noticed that another name kept showing up. A woman who was listed as Jack's fiancée on a car lease application. And all of the paper trails led back to a post office box in Ellicott City, rented by a woman named Nancy Siegel. When investigators started taking a hard look at Nancy, they quickly figured out that Jack was only one in a long line of victims. Nancy was born in 1948. She grew up in Fells Point, a working-class neighborhood in East Baltimore near the shipyards. Her dad was an oil burner, and he had a complicated love life. He split with Nancy Jean's mother, Doris Leary, shortly after Nancy's younger sister, Little Doris, was born in 1950. So Nancy and her dad went to live with family, and Doris left and took Nancy's younger sister with her. This meant that Nancy had almost no contact with her natural mother or her sister after that. She had already lost one parent, and then, when Nancy was just 16, she lost her dad. He was walking home from a local tavern when two men attacked him, beat him viciously, and a few days later, he died of a blood clot in the brain. As a teen, Nancy became a regular on The Buddy Dean Show. This was kind of a local version of the Dick Clark Show American Bandstand. She definitely looked the part of the American Dream Girl. Five feet tall, barely 100 pounds, with blonde hair and blue eyes, Nancy learned at an early age that her looks allowed her to get away with a lot. When she was just 19, Nancy married for the first time to a man named Charles Kucharski. The couple went on to have two daughters, Jennifer and Amanda. This seems to have been the most normal period of Nancy's life. For a while, at least, things seemed to be stable. But Nancy had a secret life. According to an FBI press release... That's when she started gambling. A totally new dimension in entertainment is only a bus ride away in the new Atlantic City. Her husband figured out that she'd been driving to Atlantic City, where gambling was legal. But by then, Nancy was addicted, and her game of choice was video poker. To cover her losses, she started taking out credit cards in her husband's name 
And when the bills would come to the house, Nancy would simply grab them and hide them before her husband saw them. By the way, this low-tech method would be the cornerstone of all of her future scams. But eventually, the creditors and the IRS came calling. Charles was shocked to discover that he and Nancy owed $60,000 in back taxes. Assistant U.S. Attorney Tamara Fine told the TV show Dark Crimes that the IRS was trying to get tax money they were owed on Nancy's winnings. When the couple divorced in 1985, Charles was left with over $100,000 in debt. He was forced to file for bankruptcy a few years later, according to court records. After she separated from Charles, Nancy set her sights on someone else, Ted Geisendaffer. Ted and Nancy had been high school sweethearts at one point, and even though Ted was married to someone else, he left his wife. And he tied the knot with Nancy on February 8, 1985. Once again, Nancy managed to take control of his money within months of marrying him. And once again, Nancy was drawn to the bright lights and slot machines of Atlantic City. In the early 90s, Nancy met a woman named Linda Mayberry. Now, this is a part of the story that you won't see in court documents, but Carlton Smith does cover it in his book. According to the book, In the Arms of Evil, Linda ran a high-class escort service in the Baltimore area, and before long, Nancy was working for her. He wrote, quote, Nancy specialized in wealthy, middle-aged Jewish men, end quote. According to court documents, Ted finally caught on to Nancy's scams after she started altering mortgage checks so they were payable to her instead of the bank. At this point, Ted flew into a rage. He threatened to turn Nancy over to the authorities, and the fight got physical. Ted, who outweighed Nancy by around 100 pounds and towered over her, tried to calm the situation down, but Nancy ended up breaking her wrist when she attempted to hit him. Ted said he ended up hiding in a closet until he could calm down. In 1992, the couple separated. A messy divorce followed. And by the way, when the divorce was finalized in 1993, Ted, like Charles before him, was left with over $18,000 in debts related to Nancy's spending habits. But by then, Nancy had already moved on. That spring, she started seeing a wealthy businessman named Eric Siegel. According to Linda, he was a former client of the escort service. Eric had his own tragic backstory. He had been driving his car drunk in 1991 when he got into an accident. One of his children was injured and the other killed. His marriage fell apart and he started going to AA. By all accounts, he was trying to rebuild his life when he had the misfortune of meeting Nancy. By 1994, Nancy's life was even more of a mess. She had lost Ted and she had broken up with Eric, who had gone back to his wife. And she had started fighting with Linda and Linda's husband, Jack. Linda alleged that Nancy defrauded her by altering a check that an escort client had given her by changing the amount paid from $500 to $5,000. And Jack, Linda's husband, gave Nancy $3,000 for a car loan, which Nancy was refusing to pay back. In fact, Nancy allegedly threatened to turn Linda over to the IRS. But what was Linda going to do? Call the police and say, help me, this woman is ripping off my escort service? So Linda felt like she had to back off. Alone and adrift, Nancy was arrested several times over the next couple years. The charges included passing bad checks, shoplifting, bank fraud, and counterfeiting. But like so many white-collar criminals, she pretty much kept ripping people off and kept getting away with it. Even when her theft was at its most brazen, she never served more than a few days in jail. Nancy repeatedly took advantage of the fact that many people would not suspect a middle-class, white, affluent woman. 
She would steal a purse from someone and use the credit cards until they maxed out, or until the fraud was reported, a process that took a lot longer 20 years ago. In December 1992, Nancy stole a wallet from a woman named Merle Beckman at a shopping center. According to court documents, she used her credit cards until they were canceled. And she also, quote, managed to convince bank employees to give her the number of the account connected to Beckman's ATM card, end quote. Nancy made several thousand dollars from that scam. Then in January 1993, Nancy stole a wallet from another woman and wrote payable to Charlene Townsend on the account and then posed as Charlene Townsend to cash the checks. Then she stole a wallet from a woman whose daughter took dance classes with her daughter. Even though the woman changed her account number twice, Nancy somehow managed to talk bank employees into giving her the new information over the phone. That was another part of her scam, by the way, she would later tell investigators. She always tried to use the phone and never fill anything out. She could also sweet-talk the tellers into giving her large amounts of cash, which Nancy, wearing a baseball cap, would pick up at the drive-thru. By November of 1994, Nancy needed a new source of income to feed her gambling habit. And that's when, tragically, she met Jack Watkins. Ironically, Nancy was working as a salesperson for Evergreen Memorial Gardens, a cemetery in Finksburg, Maryland, and actually ended up selling Jack a crypt. Jack's extended family described him as loving, happy, social, and very eager to please. They said he was almost childlike. Jack was a widower. He had been married to his wife Mary for a long time, and she had pretty much dominated their marriage. He had a love of drinking, but he was a happy drunk, not a mean one. He loved nothing more than to fire up his karaoke machine and start singing with a group of friends. He was also a regular at bowling, bingo, and the breakfast group, where he regularly saw his friends. Jack had cared for Mary when she developed multiple sclerosis, but she died in 1989, and when she passed away, she left Jack her house. When Jack met Nancy, he saw a young, beautiful blonde woman. Nancy saw someone who was single with good credit, who owned his house free and clear with no mortgage. Despite the age difference, according to court documents, Jack and Nancy struck up a relationship. They, quote, became inseparable and both represented their relationship as a romantic one, end quote. Soon, within a few months, Nancy had access to Jack's bank accounts. She ended up opening 28 different credit accounts, all in his name, and making huge charges on jewelry, clothes, and other essentials. At the same time, Nancy was cutting Jack off from contact with friends and family. Before he met Nancy, he had a circle of regular friends. He was also close to his stepdaughters, who checked in with him regularly. His stepdaughters, Cheryl and Anita, would later tell investigators that they would call to check on Jack, but Nancy would always say he was not home. Over time, people started to notice that his phone number was replaced with hers on documents requiring contact information. Nancy was also deleting Jack's voicemails. Jack's family got the impression that he didn't want to see them, so they stayed away, which to me is one of the most heartbreaking parts of this whole story. Jack was blissfully ignorant and in love. He didn't know that his perfect woman had changed the mailing addresses of the existing credit accounts to her mailing addresses so that he would have no idea that the bill collectors were hounding him. In 1995, Jack and Nancy went to the BMW dealership they signed up for a new car lease, 
over $40,000. So Nancy drove away with a brand new car, and Jack got the car loan in his name. That same year, Nancy convinced Jack to take out a mortgage on his property on Sun Gold Road to clear her debts, all 13 unpaid credit card accounts, and to give her $20,000. Court documents would later claim that she induced Jack to take out the mortgage. She told him that she was planning to use the money to buy a condo so that Jack and Nancy could live there after they were married. Though it's not hard to imagine she might have also spun a sob story about being in debt to some crime overlords and needing him to rescue her. But the big happy family story was the biggest lie of all because, unbeknownst to Jack Watkins, Nancy had been seeing her ex-boyfriend, Eric, for months. Nancy kept stealing money from Jack and again fell behind on payments. And in early 1996, she made arrangements to sell Jack's house outright for $90,000. This meant that in the end, Jack would net $4,000 at most from a house that he had owned free and clear a few months earlier. Nancy had cleaned him out completely. But now, Jack was out of money, and Nancy had no further use for him. Something else odd happened in March 1996. That's when Nancy called Jack's longtime doctor, Craig Haber. Now, Dr. Haber would later tell investigators that he had known Jack for years and said despite his heart surgery, Jack was in great shape, youthful, and always in good spirits when he talked to him. But Nancy painted a very different picture of what was going on at home. She told Dr. Haber that Jack had been behaving erratically. She said he'd been drinking heavily, ranting and raving, and that he had a gun in the house. In the end, Nancy told Dr. Haber the situation had calmed down. But investigators later wondered if this was an attempt to set the stage for what happened next. Right before leaving his house forever, Jack went for one final meeting with his breakfast club friends with Nancy on his arm. Nancy told Jack's friends that he'd be moving into her condo, so this would be the last they saw of him for a long while. Many of them expressed the same thought. They thought that he seemed happy, but they were worried. They thought Nancy seemed like a gold digger. And they were right. During that time period, around April 1996, Nancy pawned most of Jack's personal possessions, including his beloved karaoke machine. Jack drove away with Nancy that day, and his friends never saw him again. On April 11, 1996, Jack checked in to the Howard County General Hospital. Nancy was with him. He said that he was dizzy. He was slurring his words. He told doctors that he had just taken a trip to Atlantic City with Nancy, his fiancée. Meanwhile, Nancy told doctors that she wasn't Jack's fiancée. She said he was a delusional old man. She was just his caretaker. She told doctors that Jack must have wandered off to Atlantic City on his own somehow and had too much to drink. She painted a picture of him as a crazy drunk. Over the next several days, Jack encountered something that's actually one of my worst nightmares— he kept telling the doctors that he was fine and sane. They kept telling him he was crazy. He told them he was getting married to Nancy, but she had said that he was delusional, and they believed her. So tragically, the doctors concluded, based only on Nancy's word, that Jack suffered from dementia and that he was not engaged to this attractive younger woman. They chalked his illness up to malnutrition and drinking too much. They thought that Jack could have something called Korsakoff syndrome, which is a kind of dementia related to vitamin deficiency that's caused by alcohol abuse. Court documents read, quote, By now, Jack was running out of money, and Nancy began taking steps to have Mr. Watkins wrongfully committed for psychiatric care while pawning his personal assets, end quote. 
This actually started to sound like a bad Lifetime movie. It's so crazy that this could happen in the real world, but it did, and it's pure evil. Tragically, during this time, the hospital did not do a brain scan or look at the results of the one that had been done shortly before. If they had, they would have seen that everything in Jack's brain was totally normal. They put Jack into a psychiatric ward. But a few days later, they called Nancy to say they were unable to find a long-term care solution for Jack. So Nancy had no choice. She had to take Jack home with her to the condo in Ellicott City. But by now, Nancy and Eric were getting hot and heavy again, and she could not have her wealthy boyfriend finding out about her fraud or the elderly man she had living in her condo. Jack had become a liability. She had to get rid of him. Jack may have been dead, but his social security checks lived on. And for the next seven years, until July 2003, after Jack's body was finally identified, Nancy used Jack's social security number to divert his payments to her P.O. box. Meanwhile, she went back to her old scams, stealing stuff from people's mailboxes, applying for credit, and then diverting the bills. Nancy did this to one of her neighbors. This time she went too far because one of the letters did get through, and the neighbor called the police. In 1998, Nancy got busted. She pleaded guilty in Maryland State Court to charges stemming from the wallet thefts, over 70 charges in total. When one of the detectives talked to her, she sounded almost proud as she told them how she got away with her frauds. Sometimes, she said, she would simply raid mailboxes and look for checks payable to someone, then pose as the payee, especially around the holidays, when pre-approved offers for credit were plentiful, especially in the early pre-2008 recession days. In front of the judge and people in authority, Nancy cried, she talked about her gambling addiction, and she begged for leniency from the court because she said she had two young daughters. But she didn't seem to be relying too much on her higher power to handle things while she waited for sentencing. Instead, she took matters into her own hands. She stole a co-worker's driver's license and pasted her picture on it so that she could apply for loans in the co-worker's name. The book In the Arms of Evil read, quote, it didn't hurt at all that Nancy was white, contrite, seemingly middle class, and the mother of two, end quote. For the thefts, Nancy was given concurrent sentences of 15 days in jail to be served on weekend work release and a suspended sentence of just under five years. The judge told her to go to Gamblers Anonymous and to pay her victims restitution. Again, Nancy claimed that she was in debt to shadowy loan sharks. She cried and said she'd considered suicide. After investigators executed a search warrant on her home in 1998, they had a hard time believing she was a master criminal, even when they found the blank checks in the BMW parked in the driveway that were made out to Jack Watkins. Nancy admitted that the car was registered to Jack Watkins. In the end, detectives dropped it. And even after all that, she kept using Jack's ID. After so many close calls, she may have begun to believe that she was untouchable. After years off and on, Nancy finally married Eric Siegel in December 1998. And even though her husband had money, Nancy still went back to her old scams. She cracked into his accounts and applied for loans and new credit accounts in his name, without him having a clue. Until, in 2003, investigators found out who Jack was and followed the money trail back to Nancy. Then the FBI got involved, and the Social Security Administration, U.S. Postal Inspectors, as well as the Loudoun County Sheriff's investigators, 
And one day in early 2003, when Nancy showed up to pick up a Social Security check, federal agents were watching her. Investigators determined that Nancy had stolen around $90,000 in Social Security benefits from Jack over the years. This wasn't counting the money she pocketed after selling his house out from under him, or the unpaid car payments, or the lines of credit she'd opened in his name. Nancy had wiped Jack out financially in under a year, killed him, and then kept cashing in on him posthumously. Nancy denied all of the charges. She told detectives that she had lived with Jack for eight months at one point and was cashing checks to him as a favor because he couldn't get a checking account due to his financial issues. Nancy insisted that Jack was in fine health and living to her knowledge with a woman named Ruth. She told the FBI that Jack had been like a father to her. Detectives were able to trace some of the physical evidence. There was hair that investigators claim matched the hair of Nancy's dog, Joshy. And they figured out that Nancy had a habit of painting her toenails on top of that trunk, which is where they believed the nail polish spots had come from. At some point, Nancy cracked. She said she wanted to tell investigators everything and kept saying, quote, it didn't happen the way you think, end quote. But she never really told the truth about what happened to Jack. On August 27, 2003, Nancy was hit with a string of charges, including wire fraud, bank fraud theft, and identity theft. In January 2004, another indictment came down, with 22 charges in total, including the charge of witness tampering. The prosecution argued that this was a classic fraud detection homicide case. They claimed that Nancy killed Jack to prevent him from reporting her fraud to anyone in authority. But first, according to an indictment quoted in the Washington Post, she, quote, attempted to control Watkins by drugging him and depriving him of food, end quote. The indictment also stated that Nancy cut off Jack's access to his friends and family. Then the prosecution tried an interesting and potentially risky legal strategy. They claimed that Nancy's entire life had basically been prior bad acts that led up to Jack's death. This meant making the argument that everything in her life, her infidelity, past shoplifting, everything, was connected to Jack's murder. Some experts said it seemed like a risky move. Nancy's attorneys fought this, and just a week before her trial was scheduled to start, the district court granted her lawyer's motion to strike a lot of this stuff from the record. They barred the government from bringing up evidence about crimes that were not mentioned in the indictment. But the government appealed, and they won. This meant that prosecutors were allowed to introduce into evidence all of Nancy's frauds, dating back decades. According to the Washington Times, the federal appeals court, quote, stated that the government claims that evidence of the other crimes is admissible to show the full scope of the fraud scheme and demonstrate a motive for killing Jack, end quote. One of Nancy's daughters and one of her old friends said that Nancy told them that Jack killed himself, that she'd found him on the bed with rope nearby, and then she just panicked and hid the body. At first, investigators thought that Eric may have been in on Nancy's schemes. In fact, he was a victim. He was shocked to discover that his wife had stolen around $300,000 from him over the years, and as she had done so many times in the past, was hiding the bills so that he never found them. Prosecutors argued that Nancy and Eric's relationship was also absolutely relevant to the case. Court papers stated, quote, Eric's wealth made him a much more attractive target for Siegel's attentions, so she needed to find a way to end her relationship with Watkins that would not jeopardize her freedom or her access to Eric's financial resources. If Siegel had simply walked away from Watkins in order to pursue a relationship with Eric, 
Watkins, who no longer had his own place to live, or any personal possessions for that matter, would have had little choice but to turn to his long-neglected friends or family for help. His family and friends would almost certainly have discovered and explained to Watkins what Siegel had done to him, which would have placed Siegel at great risk, end quote. Nancy pleaded not guilty. Originally, the government considered asking for the death penalty, but in the end, they settled for second-degree murder. In 2008, Nancy finally went to trial. According to the book In the Arms of Evil, the petite blonde who had charmed so many men now weighed in at around 150 pounds, and she was still claiming to be a victim. Again, she said she had a gambling problem, she said her ex-husband Ted had abused her, and she said she thought about killing herself. The prosecution stated that Nancy's frauds have resulted in hundreds of thousands of dollars in losses to between 10 and 50 individual and institutional victims. This included her daughters, by the way. It came out at trial that Nancy had taken money that her daughter Jennifer had given her to make car payments, and Jennifer's car eventually was repossessed. And after that sob story that Nancy had told the previous judge about needing to care for her two daughters, it turned out that Nancy had actually stolen her daughter's identities and used them to open credit accounts and then default on them. So both girls' credit ratings were destroyed. Nancy even occasionally used her daughter's identities when she was cashing her dead lover Jack's Social Security checks. On April 23, 2009, Judge Andre M. Davis sentenced Nancy Jean Siegel, age 61, to 400 months, which translates to about 33 years in prison, followed by five years of supervised release. This was for second-degree murder, witness tampering, theft of government benefits, identity theft and fraud offenses in connection with a scheme to use the identities of victims, including an elderly man she murdered for personal gain. Judge Davis also ordered Nancy to make full restitution to the fraud victims, but no one's holding their breath on that one. U.S. Attorney Rosenstein said, quote, It took 13 years of hard work by intrepid investigators and persistent prosecutors for the trunk that served as Jack Watkins' coffin to make it from a curb in Loudoun County, Virginia, to a courtroom in Baltimore, Maryland, end quote. During closing arguments, prosecutors laid out their version of what they believe happened. They believe that Nancy fed Jack large amounts of cold medicine and over-the-counter sleeping pills and slowly starved him. Prosecutors think that at some point, Jack may have figured out what was happening and in a lucid moment may have tried to leave. That's when they say they believe Nancy hit him over the head with something and then pressed down on his neck, cutting off his air supply was something that would leave the L-shaped bruise on his throat, something, they say, like a high-heeled shoe. The medical examiners estimated it would have taken around two minutes for Jack to die. That's a long time for Nancy to be looking down at him, pressing on his neck, waiting for it to be over. In 2009, Jack's body was finally laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery. To this day, Nancy has never admitted to killing Jack, but at least, prosecutors hope, she would finally be behind bars where she could not do this to anyone else. Rosenstein said, quote, Nancy Siegel seduced Jack Watkins and stole his money. Then she murdered him, put his naked body in a trunk, and dumped it in the trash so that she could continue to collect his Social Security and retirement benefits for seven years. Today's sentence of 400 months in prison ensures that Nancy Siegel's horrendous life of con games and murder is over for good. End quote. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. 
Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?